This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to The Francis Effect for the second week of October 2017. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's good to see you. And with your spirit, David. <laughs> Welcome. Um, on today's episode, we're going to look at three topics. To start out, Dan and I will be discussing almsgiving, when and how we as Catholics are expected to share with the poor. Next, we'll be talking about the continuing political drama surrounding DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or the Dreamers, and we'll be talking about sort of immigration more generally. In our last segment of the show, we'll take a step back, and I'll ask Dan a little bit about his background, and he'll do the same for me. And before we get started, I just want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis and an F and an X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment or hate mail, you can always <laughs> you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. I do not approve that last message. <laughs> if you want to send us hate mail, hate mail, keep it to yourself. Or hate meal, for that matter. <laughs> Make sure it's tasty. <laughs> Dan, how have you been this week? Uh, I, I, good. Good overall. It's been busy, but that's the life of mendicacy and itinerancy of a Franciscan. My understanding it's is it's been busy for you as well. I've had I've had family visiting and that's actually been wonderful. I I like having my family come and visit. And uh I have been working a lot and so there's been sort of no rest for me, but but that's okay because the work is enjoyable and the and everything else is enjoyable, so I'm I'm doing well. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, with that, let's let's get into our first topic and uh, what really spurred me to want to talk about this was an excellent recent article by Beth Haley, and I hope that I'm pronouncing that right. It's H-A-I-L-E, but she wrote it uh, for U.S. Catholic Magazine, a Catholic magazine based here in Chicago, actually. Full disclosure, my wife used to be an editor at U.S. Catholic, so I, I do follow it. But um, this article that Beth wrote is called, Is It Wise to Give Your Spare Change? And what is interesting about the article and about, there's a real question about kind of what the expectation is when we encounter someone in great need or when we encounter someone who is homeless. To start this off, um, is there any particular Catholic teaching about how we are supposed to treat beggars and the poor among us? Well, I think actually the article does a pretty good job sketching out some of the contours of what Catholics should think about in, in terms of our relationship, Catholic relationship to those who are materially or abject, abjectly poor. One of the things that you said, Haley, I'm now, now I'm not sure. I think it's Hale, actually. She's a, she's a fellow Boston College uh, alum, you know, earned her PhD in, in theological ethics there, and uh, is now an independent scholar. And anyways, Professor Hale, I think what she is, is getting at here is really important. She says that 
to care for the poor in terms of almsgiving, giving of one's wealth or one's resources is not an optional thing for Catholics or for Christians more broadly. In fact, we see evidence of Jesus making this clear that it's a duty, a responsibility of, of Christians. We see that in Matthew uh, chapter 5, the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitude sequence there in Matthew. It's, it's not an option in the sense that, well, it's up to me to decide whether I want to do it or not. What becomes optional if we want to use that word, is really how is it that we care for the the poorest among us, uh, those who in particular are confronting us in, in, in a public way, asking for uh, donations, asking for spare change and the like. And that's what prompts this article. She talks about, for those who haven't read it yet, uh, an experience at her parish one Sunday where a refugee family was, was sitting outside her, her parish as the parishioners were leaving Mass with a sign asking for donations saying, anything helps, God bless. And she watched as nobody stopped to help them. Uh, everyone kept walking by. Uh, and it sounds like, I would assume, even herself. I don't know. It's, it's uh, observational at first. In any event, the question was raised for her, you know, what actually is our responsibility? So with that in mind, I think she presents very well two different approaches that people often have, considering that this is a non-negotiable uh, responsibility. The first is, is it better to give one's resources, to give donations or alms to a charitable organization that can, on an institutional level, care for women and men and children in need? Or is it better to give right from your resources in the moment to somebody asking for them on the street? And this is kind of the ongoing debate, the ongoing tension. You, as a Franciscan friar, you've taken a vow of poverty. Am I correct about that? That is correct. Well, sort of. I, I, just to qualify that, what's commonly called poverty, chastity, and obedience, though those are good kind of general descriptors, each religious order in their profession of way of life articulates that slightly differently. So, for instance, just to be very, very technical, given that we're coming up on the Feast of St. Francis, what Franciscan friars profess is to live what's called in Latin sine proprio, which is to live without anything of our own and in chastity and in obedience to the successor of St. Francis and to the Pope. So, yes, we profess what's popularly called a vow of poverty, but it's, it's sine proprio to live without anything of, of one's own. And we could say more about evangelical poverty, but that's probably best... Uh, set aside for our uh, bonus round. Yeah, but what, what I'm what I'm thinking about in in light of that is, you know, when we think about poverty as a religious discipline, over against poverty that comes about from situational or circumstantial activities of, uh, you know, when a person is trapped in poverty as opposed to when a person voluntarily chooses poverty. But what I find oftentimes is that in the narrative that still gets reversed, even when we can see clear examples of structural poverty, clear examples of people who have tried everything to get a leg up or to get their bootstraps sort of pulled up, and they still can't because of any number of reasons, and we can talk a little bit about that. There still is a narrative, at least in certain corners of our society, that, that says, hey, these people are somehow choosing this, or it's a moral failing on their part, and that's why they're here. And that's one of the reasons why I think Dr. Hale does a very good job of bringing this out in the, the article, the notion that Pope Francis has given us that there's an obligation not just to give institutionally to help those that are poor and indigent, but there's also the responsibility that we have to, in, in some way or other, begin to make ourselves available and vulnerable to them because it can help us to build relationships with them and to find their humanity and their dignity in the midst of that encounter. 
I think one of the, you, you bring up a really good point about the role of voluntary poverty, and I think that's that's an important way to think about the professed religious commitments of, of women and men religious. What we profess to do, living sine proprio without anything of our own, is is a, in a public way commit to not appropriate things. You know, we don't own property, we don't accumulate wealth, and 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 so forth, and and that's twofold. There's a twofold purpose. It's not an end in itself. It's not a glorification of poverty or the lack of those basic resources needed for human flourishing as an end in itself. Rather, it's it's a means toward a greater goal. At least this was Francis of Assisi's vision modeled after Jesus's example in the gospel. And the twofold goal is, on the one hand, solidarity with our brothers and sisters who involuntarily suffer abject or material poverty. Nothing gets in the way of that. And that's the second thing is to protest or to draw attention to the injustices. Or you can think of it as like a constructive mode of embracing uh, voluntary poverty. In other words, we aren't accumulating things for ourselves that could otherwise be given to or, or made available to those who go without. And so I think this is one way to think about, you know, going back to what is the everyday Christian's responsibility, the everyday Catholic's responsibility in the face of those seeking alms. The question is really like, uh, to put it in a way that one of my friends put it, and has always stayed with me, uh, it's very striking, which is, to whom is this money or this thing or whatever owed? In other words, what right does one have to hold on to that spare change in your pocket or that $5 bill or whatever it may be? It, it's been expressed variously. I think of people like Dorothy Day and uh, even more secular ph- philosophers like Peter Singer and others have talked about Anything that's, that one has beyond what's net needed for kind of sustaining oneself and, and caring for uh, those basic uh, requirements for human flourishing for oneself and one's family, everything beyond that is effectively stealing from the poor. It's, it's a blunt statement, but then it does indict us. You know, if I have more money than I need, you know, for me to survive for the day and, and, and to care for my family or whatever it may be, then who am I to withhold that? From somebody who asks for it, and I think I think that's one of the things that uh, Dr. Hale's ra- raising here. That's as that's something we need to consider. You you talk about the example of Dorothy Day. What I keep coming back to is the example of Saint John Chrysostom and his his sermons on wealth and poverty. And one of the things that convicts me from Chrysostom is his. There's a very interesting polarity that he says. He says that the rich exist to give to the poor, and the poor exist to save the souls of the rich. And I'm, that, that's almost a direct quote, and then he goes on to expand on that idea. Sounds but, like something a rich bishop would say. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the idea is, is basically that we don't get to heaven or we don't get uh, salvation by our things. And oftentimes we can be distracted from the activities of salvation by our things. And one of the aspects of that that I find very convicting is this notion somehow that when we think about Christ saying the poor will be with you always, some people use that as an excuse to ignore poverty or an excuse to ignore the structural and systemic things that bring poverty about. Looking at it through the the Chrysostom lens, you instead get the idea of, yes, the poor will be with you always because we're always accumulating wealth and the the wealthy will always need the salvation that can be brought by giving alms to the poor. And there's a symbiosis there that's, that's important and a, an interdependability or an interdependence that is very important. And one of the things that I really liked about this article was the title, Is It Wise to Give Your Spare Change? Because really, in what Dr. Hale is doing, there's almost a, a, a turn or a, a bait and switch in that title because 
a person reading that who hasn't given this a lot of thought or who hasn't meditated on Chrysostom might end up thinking, well, my spare change is sort of the, the most that I should do in a situation. And the idea instead uh, from the article, and I really want to expand this through the idea of Chrysostom, is that it's not wise to give your spare change. It's not wise to have the poor be cared for as an afterthought or with what are you, whatever you have left over from the latte that you bought earlier. Instead, what I think Chrysostom is calling us to, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, what Chrysostom is calling us to is to structure our lives and our finances and our households in a very way in which the poor are considered as part of our financial decisions so that we are carrying around money not as spare change but intentionally for those that are in need. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that because that's, that's how I've interpreted all of this. Yeah, I think I think that's not a bad idea. It's certainly in terms of a holistic approach to one's spiritual life and, and practices and, and engaging one's faith and praxis uh, is really important. That's one thing that, that Hale points out here is that, you know, people who claim to be charitable, you know, who think that they're giving and may actually give, uh, oftentimes respond in these nationwide surveys saying that they give close to 10% or something to charity, including their church offerings and so forth. But upon further examination, it ends up being something closer to 3% or less. So people aren't as charitable as they think they are. And so I think your point about Chrysostom and that interpretation is is valid to suggest that actually what one should do is is think uh, and in, in an anticipatory way, you know, about how are we going to give, what does that mean um, in, in terms of how we budget, uh, et cetera. I think there are a couple other things, though, that, that are worth considering. One is, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the very, very good arguments that she makes here uh, about why that is not sufficient in and of itself. And I think there are, are two points. One is an, is an attitude, attitudinal shifts that are required. And this is something uh, that's rooted in the Christian tradition, but it's also something that is, is you know, I, I think worth thinking about in a practical way. And that's the attitudes that govern when or when we don't respond to that invitation of a sister or brother before us. And I think all of us, at one point or another, can identify being in this position where we simply say, oh, well, that person's going to squander this money. They're going to waste this money. Uh, they're they're going to spend it on alcohol or drugs or X, Y, or Z. And so there's a preemption there. There's a preemptive decision to withhold something that we can we can give that isn't going to actually tap into or affect our bottom line. It's not going to mean, do I give to this person and not eat dinner tonight? That's a different kind of question, perhaps. Instead, it's it's a question of luxury, not utility, as she put it. You know, when it comes to individual almsgiving, it's not just the spare change. And you're right, borrowing from Chrysostom in terms of this interpretation, we shouldn't just pass our leftovers to those who are in need. I think there needs to be a holistic approach. But additionally, we need to say, well, wait a minute, who am I to judge this person if they're going to have a glass of wine, to quote Pope Francis. Now, he was speaking to Milanese uh, <laughs> clergy at that point. So I'm like, in Milan, maybe they're drinking uh, wine. But, you know, uh, let's say a 40 malt liquor or something like this. Who am I to judge that person when I'm going to spend that $3 or $5 or whatever on a latte, you know, at Starbucks? So it's not the change left over, but it's the, do I need that? Am I the one who's actually squandering this stuff? And there, there's a whole morality, there's a whole narrative that goes with that, because when you look at someone who is making those kind of decisions in real time and saying, well, I'm not going to give money to this person because they're just going to spend it on this intoxicant, and then that person turns around and, as you said, spend, you know, 
themselves gets an intoxicant or gets an indulgence in, in terms of a latte or something that makes them feel good. There's a real morality there. They're saying this person doesn't deserve to have that good thing, but I do. And that this money is, is my dessert over against this person's need. And I, I, can't, I can't speak to every homeless person that I encounter, but I have gotten to the point where I, I don't make that calculation as much anymore because one of the things that I realized is when I go home sometimes and I've had a hard day, my wife and I will have a nightcap. And that nightcap is what I say I need to sort of smooth the edge off of the day. I imagine that a homeless person that I'm encountering has a much more rough day than I ever could have. And I think that's the logic that Pope Francis brought up in, in, in that rather cute way, talking about the wine. I, I also think that, you know, going back to the more holistic approach, it's important for us to realize the structures of institutional poverty. We spoke in the last episode about the deinstitutionalization of the mental uh, health care system in the 80s, the deregularization of that, and the federal government's basically throwing, you know, hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of people on the street. And so it, it is an issue of self-medication sometimes, but the point is it's not our place to judge. Now, here's why I think, and this didn't get addressed as directly in, you know, in Dr. Hale's piece, but the question is, why do people come jump to these conclusions? Why do people presume this? And I, and I think one of the primary reasons is people fill their heads with these judgments in viewing somebody asking for spare change or for alms because they cannot confront themselves with the reality that that could very well be them in any number of other circumstances. And, and really, in, in, you know, it doesn't take much for somebody to be in such a precarious or vulnerable place. And so I think one way of unhealthy self-defense is to say, well, you, as you said earlier, David, you deserve to be there. You have made bad decisions or you did something to get this way. I am not you. And so therefore, I'm not going to acknowledge the reality of this, which is essentially what's going on. Uh, one of the things that Pope Francis is talking about, one of the things that Hale's talking about, one of the things that I, I, I challenge myself to think about is it's so much easier to walk by somebody not look them in the eye, not even say, hello, maybe you don't actually have anything in the moment to give them, except the recognition that you are seeing their humanity before you. And, and I think that's what's called of us. Well, there's obviously more to say about this, and we will certainly come back to this topic again in future episodes. We'd love to hear what you think. How do you wrestle with this? How do you make decisions in the split second when you're encountering someone who is in, in desperate need or in poverty? If you want to, you can leave that with us on Facebook at FrancisFXPod or on Twitter at FrancisFXPod. You can also send us an email, and you can get that from our website at FrancisFXPod.com. We'll be right back. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to the Francis Effects Podcast. I'm Dan Horan here with David Dolt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now we're moving to talk about a subject that has been in the news, sadly not as much recently, though it should be, and that is DACA, the Dreamers and U.S. immigration policy. This is an unresolved issue. President Trump uh, made a decision to uh, inform his attorney general to cancel that program, which previously allowed for undocumented or alternatively documented young people who were brought here by no effort of their own to work and to kind of acknowledge their presence here and and to study in the United States. It's been a wide-ranging success. It's no longer an option and expires in six months. David, what do you have to say about this? Well, I, I want to first of all start with something that came out early in September when Steve Bannon, right after he left the White House, was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And one of the comments that he made in passing when he was confronted with some of the questions about immigration and Catholic social teaching, he made this this comment where he said that, that the Catholic Church was coming down on the side of supporting immigrants and the Dreamers because, quote, they need illegal aliens to fill the churches, unquote. And I, I want to I start there because I think that uh, for our friends on the right, that may sound like a reasonable position. And let me explain why. About 10 years ago, the Pew Center for Religion and Life did a a longitudinal research study about religious life in the United States. And this was where, among other things, we began to get the language of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the people who were raised religious and now have no religious affiliation whatsoever. One of the pieces of data that came out of that religious landscape study, and we'll put a link to that on the show notes, One of the pieces of data that came out of that religious landscape study was that even though across the board, denominational membership was declining in the United States, one of the areas that was holding steady was Catholic membership. The reason why the Pew Research Center gave for Catholics holding their numbers steady was as they were losing Anglo and multi-generational Catholics that had been in America for a number of years, those numbers were being replaced by an influx of immigrants, mostly from Latino, Latina countries. So on its surface, if you look at the data and if you look at this statement, you might think that Steve Bannon has a point. Now I want to stand against that point and push back against that point and say, to make the argument that somehow the bishops are saying that they want to support immigration simply for a numbers game, not only is that cynical, but that also completely misunderstands the way in which Catholics think about immigrants and think about immigrants not just in terms of sociology, but in terms of their theology. Because when we talk about both the the core narrative of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament that we get, and also the core narrative of the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior himself, in both cases we find immigration and welcoming of the immigrant as a core of that. And when we think about that, both in the Old Testament sense, remember that you were once a fugitive, remember that you were once an an immigrant. And when we think about the flight into Egypt in the life of Jesus Christ, both of those things remind us as Catholics, theologically, that immigration is not something we can turn our back on. Yeah, that's so important. (laughs) I I have to laugh because I think in in proposing that rather preposterous reason for why the U.S. bishops are speaking out against 
the Trump administration and its cancellation of DACA and its its failure to replace uh, a humane process for protecting these these young people. He's unveiling his own sort of authorship of Donald Trump's wacko, I would say, bizarre claim right after the inauguration, um, or maybe it was even before that, now that I think about it, that some two to three million of the votes that Secretary Hillary Clinton earned at the election were cast by, quote, illegal uh, immigrants. This this idea, again, that anytime something goes wrong or anytime there's something that uh, opposes a strategy or a plan, well, you got to blame, quote, unquote, illegal immigrants, undocumented men and women. So just first and foremost, I think it's ridiculous. Second of all, you know, to, to follow up to your point, not only do we have in sacred scripture a, a rich tradition that grounds our faith in care for the stranger, the alien, the widow, the orphan, those who are most vulnerable, including those who are fleeing violence, those who are in an experience of exile. But we have in our modern articulation of the Catholic faith, uh, I can think off the top of my head of two very, very clear instances that support why the bishops are actually taking this position. On the first hand, we have in recent history, the encyclical letter of John Paul II, Veritatis Splendor, in which he reiterates uh, the tradition of the church, the teaching of the church, that deportation is in this context, as it manifests itself in uh, the American uh, framework, uh, a form of sin. You could look at the document to see how that's articulated in greater detail. The other thing is, and this is an overarching theme throughout uh, Catholic teaching, particularly in Catholic ethics, that the only purpose, the primary purpose of politics and in government is to protect and manifest the common good. And so when we treat what I've I've heard referred to, this population is undocumented Americans. And I really like that because these are people who are brought to this country by no fault of their own as young children, sometimes as infants, uh, who have known no other nation, no other country, no other culture than the experience of the United States. And so they are, in all sense, except for papers, Americans. To treat them this way and to, to treat a class of people in such a way does not support or manifest the common good. One of the things that is important in this debate is that oftentimes it happens in the absence of experience with actual families that are uh, that are affected by this. And this gets back to what we were saying in the first segment as well. The more that you can actually make yourself encounter and be vulnerable to and be open to the experiences of those who are living with this kind of precariousness, the more that you will begin to realize that this is not just a question of numbers, it's not just a question of border security, it's a question of human dignity. And it's a question of human dignity on a number of levels. First of all, whether you're a Catholic or an evangelical, if you're a person of faith, one of your core ideas oftentimes is that families are best when they are allowed to be together. And families flourish when there is a fully functional husband, wife, children. I mean, that, that's, that's a, a basic Catholic teaching, the notion that all of those are necessary for a fully functioning and flourishing family unit. Certainly, there are families that we can find that have different uh, arrangements of these sorts of things, but in terms of just the Catholic teaching and oftentimes the evangelical teaching, it comes back to that notion. One of the things that our current immigration lack of system does is it makes those families precarious. For reasons of documentation, a husband, a wife, a child— A child might be separated from their parents. A breadwinner might be separated from other members of the family. And that kind of precariousness leads to a precariousness in the family. 
and the precariousness in the family, and I, I'm saying this to my, my friends on the right, if the family really is the fundamental building block of society, as you oftentimes say and that you believe, then you need to do things to make sure that families get a chance to stay together. And you find a way to make those families, regardless of their legal status, be able to upbuild and contribute to society, not to put obstacles in their way so that you guarantee that they are either being a drag on society or that they're causing some sort of social ill within society. And those kinds of choices, when it comes back to things like, you know, the rhetoric that gets used in, in a political debate that comes down to the brass tacks of a moment when you actually have a chance to make a choice that is consistent with that rhetoric, these are points where I really think that a person who, and I, I have deep respect for many of my friends on the right, just a deep respect for many of my friends on the left, I want them to find ways to make their, their rhetoric be coherent with their action. Because when they say, well, the family is the most important social unit, it's the most important building block, but then you put in place structures that are guaranteed to be an impediment to the flourishing of the family, there's an inconsistency there that needs to be addressed. Speaking of addressing it, um, it's important for us to realize, too, that uh, one of the things the bishops are calling for and reflects, as we've already highlighted, very accurately Catholic teaching, the Catholic tradition, the Christian perspective writ large, is that now we need to do something, all right? So an action has taken place. The Trump administration has uh, retracted DACA as the effect, the, the executive order of the previous administration under President Obama. It's important for us to remember, too, that that was only a temporary fix for the problem of uh, how does one, in a, in a just and merciful and responsible way, help these young people, again, who are undocumented Americans. And so now we, we are back not exactly to square one because there's been legislation that has been frozen for the last 16 years that was first introduced in a bipartisan way, but co-sponsored by Senator from Illinois, Dick Durbin, called the DREAM Act, which is still there. It's been on the table. It's been there to be uh, picked up. Now the responsibility really falls to the United States Congress. I think there's actually, uh, though though the bishops are right, and, and I agree with them, that the repeal of DACA is inhumane, breaks up the families, David, as you were just saying, and so forth. I think what we have now is a responsibility to is to do something more permanent, to to take care of this in, in a just, merciful, and responsible way. And I think the passage of the DREAM Act is the way one does that. And this is one of the things that the bishops actually urge. So from earlier in the fall, we, we have from September 5th, a statement from the USCCB, and they were basically saying exactly what you were saying. You know, the decision to, to end DACA is a bad decision, and they urge Congress to find a legislative solution. And we'll put a link to that letter from the USCCB on our website but what happens in their statement is basically they look at the dreamers and they, they say basically, you know, the church has recognized, and I'm quoting now, the church has recognized and proclaimed the need to welcome young people. Quote, whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. And that's from Mark 9:37. And so what the bishops are trying to do is, again, drive this back to scriptural language and say, this is not just a good idea. It's not just a, a social justice warrior kind of issue. This is not something that the bishops on the left are wanting to wave their flag for. This is something that comes to us from the very mouth of our Savior. This is something that comes to us from the words of Scripture themselves. And it's, it's a mandate for hospitality. It's a mandate to find a way to live with one another in peace and to live in, with one another in solidarity. 
And while we're speaking uh, from a perspective informed by our Catholic heritage, our Catholic faith, and we have uh, authoritative teaching and tradition to sort of bolster this perspective, going back to your point, David, for our evangelical friends, particularly those who uh, maintain a literalist or biblicist interpretation of Scripture, it doesn't get much more direct than that. Well, and let's let's actually address that for a second, because a lot of our friends on the right are going to make this a law and order issue. And they're going to say, at the end of the day, they didn't come here the right way. They didn't, they didn't stand in line. And I've often heard it said from my friends on the right or my evangelical friends, they will name someone, usually someone over the age of 40, who did it, quote, the right way, unquote. And they'll point to this person, or even that person will be in the conversation and say, I went through all of the hoops and I did the thing that I was supposed to do. What this doesn't take into account is that since 2001, and we we can even look at the sort of sweep of this going back before the 90s, the goalposts have been moving. To get into the line, quote-unquote, and to be processed into American citizenship at one point seemed to be very straightforward, but that straightforwardness has largely become opaque or impossible. And people who are coming now are finding it harder and harder. And even when they do come and start into the process, they'll oftentimes find that something disqualifies them along the way. We have made it very difficult for these families to be together. We've made it very difficult for people to become citizens in this country, particularly when those people have the wrong color skin. I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that we're talking here about DREAMers and the, and the DACA executive order, the DACA Act, in, in particular, which is important for us to remember that these people who keep pointing to, well, I did this and I did that, these children didn't have any say in this. They are completely innocent bystanders in this case, and they should not be punished. I think that that's exactly right. And when we think about the way in which we are treating minors who are trapped in a no-win situation, they don't have any, any other culture. They don't have any other language oftentimes. They have not experienced the life of, quote, their homeland, unquote, in any way that would make them able to be culturally current in that foreign land. Their home is America. And to say somehow that they're not Americans by dint of some documentation or piece of paper, when in every cultural respect they are, that's to misunderstand the way in which we think about culture in almost any other case. There's a lot more that we should probably say about this, and certainly we'll put some resources up on the website, and we we encourage you to get involved in this issue. We'll come back to it as time goes by, I'm sure, because this is certainly not a finished issue. The executive order that has been rescinded just has not solved any problems. It's opened up a whole wash of other potential problems. And so we'll be bringing this issue back up as time goes by and there are new developments. But for right now, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith, and we're very glad that you're listening. One of the things that we've realized in the process of doing this show is that Dan has a group of people who know who he is. 
I have a group of listeners who know who I am, but we realize that those two groups don't actually know across the table about the other person. And so we wanted to take a, a few minutes and just have a chance to talk about, respectively, kind of where we come from and why we're doing what we're doing. And with that, I just want to say, first of all, Dan, I have really enjoyed the chance to get to know you just in these conversations. And we've known each other a little bit before we started the show. So first of all, just thank you for being willing to become part of this bold experiment in audio excellence. <laughs> Igualmente, as they say in Spanish, it's it's likewise my uh, my pleasure, and the feeling is definitely mutual. Well, so I I want to know first of all, you are so technically you're not a monk. You're not a no. monk. You wear robes, but you're not a monk. So first of all, yes. what's the difference between a monk and what you are? Great question. So I'm a friar, not to be confused with that device full of hot oil in which one cooks <laughs> French fries. But a friar, the word itself simply means brother, and it's a term like monk that's applied to male religious, in particular, those who belong to mendicant orders, so religious orders. There are apostolic orders like the Sisters of St. Joseph or the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. There are monastic orders like the Benedictines or the Trappists or the Carthusians. And then there are these characters called the mendicants, and that would be the Carmelites, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Augustinians. And what really distinguishes us, what a friar is and how a friar is different from a monk, is a sense of itinerancy, where a monk, part of their way of life, their rule, their profession is stability. So I like to say that monks are stable, friars are terribly unstable. (laughs) But uh, what that means is that we're meant to live in the world with women and men in the world. We minister, we, we don't stay in our cloister, we don't stay in a monastery behind walls and, and that sort of thing. We're out in the parishes, we're in the schools, we're in the direct service ministries, we're doing popular preaching in the streets with people, and that's been our tradition for 800 years. And so when you were growing up, did you grow up Catholic? I did. I am a cradle Catholic. Okay. I'm not, and so I'm, I'm fascinated, first of all, by that. But then at some point along the line, you made the choice not only to continue to be a Catholic, because we know that you know teenagers come through and they get that hiccup phase where they're like, what am I going to be? Am I going to continue being what I was raised to be? And so past that hiccup phase, you made the choice not only to remain Catholic, but you made a secondary and much more profound choice to give your life to the church in this way, to become a friar and eventually also to become a priest. And if you're willing to give us a short sort of overview of how that process worked of discernment, I'd actually really like to hear it because I haven't heard this story. So in a nutshell, if I can try to put it in a nutshell, which is not my strength, I like to say that my vocation was discovered in reverse, that it's two parts. I went to Catholic school my whole life, as did my three younger brothers, a great gift of my parents, their sacrifice. They gave everything so that we could have our education. And for some reason, did not find myself in that rebellious camp of cradle Catholics. I I was very much actually drawn to the liturgy, drawn to the parish life, drawn to sacramental ministry. And so from a very young age, I would say from first grade on, I always had some kind of sense that I was being called, or at least I, I felt a desire to serve as a sacramental minister, to be ordained. All I knew, though, growing up was diocesan priesthood. I went to a diocesan parish, um, a diocesan Catholic high school, and so forth. And so when I went to college, it wasn't until then, I, by happenstance and the work of the Holy Spirit, ended up at St. Bonaventure University in, in Western New York. And that is a Franciscan university founded by the Franciscan friars. And it was there that I first encountered these 
weirdos in brown robes. And at first I was resistant. I thought, oh, I'm supposed to be a diocesan priest. I don't get these guys. Why are they so nice? So, you know, diocesan priests are nice too. But these guys, there was something about them that was very attractive, very affirming, very down to earth. And I think that's a good way to describe itinerancy and mendicancy uh, in the spirit of St. Francis. And so by my sophomore year, I started to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm one of these weirdos too. And so it was after I had first kind of discerned a call to ordained ministry, sacramental life, that I realized that my foundational, my my primary vocation is as a friar, as a Franciscan. And so I actually, I don't think of it at times as a decision to jump into something or do something new or something like that. And you said, you know, give your life to the church. It's never really struck me in that way. I've always felt it more a discovery, a discernment of who I really am already. And it's kind of an alignment, you know, it's, it's like, and let me ask you, I'll flip it around. Two-parted question. One is you've mentioned you weren't born Catholic, you weren't raised Catholic. So I'd be interested in hearing about how you became Catholic, but also I'm, I'm thinking in my own vocational experience of what I assume a lot of people experience in the marriage vocation, which is, you know, you don't, though some people may consider it this way, and, and same with religious life, you kind of pick a person or something like this, mutually pick one another. But it's also a discovery of, okay, it's oh my gosh, you know, my soulmate. It's, it's as if we were meant to be together, quote unquote. You hear that a lot. And so is it a decision? Yes and no. One decides always to live this life on a daily basis. That's certainly true, but there's also something beyond oneself. Well, and so you asked me kind of how I became Catholic, and you raised the excellent analogy of marriage. And when you say it that way, I realize that in the same way that I know deep in my soul that I'm meant to be together with my wife for the rest of my life, I I understand that now in terms of your discernment that you were meant to live this sort of life as a priest and as as a brother. I was raised atheist. I was raised without any faith at all, in fact, in a household that was very hostile to faith. And wow. Yeah, my, my mother was a, a devotee of Ayn Rand. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, and was, was very, very hostile to the idea of Christian faith in general and Catholicism in particular. You know, growing up in the Deep South, you know, I... I where, where is that? Where, where, where did, where I did I grow, you grow up? I grew up uh, just outside the Fort Benning military base in Columbus, Georgia, and oh, Phoenix yeah. City, right on the border between uh, Alabama and Georgia. I joke sometimes that if you go walking barefoot in the South, you risk catching two things, hookworm and Methodism. And so I, I got kind of the, the cultural Christianity, but I, I wasn't Christian. It was still a very... Uh, alien thing. And when I was in fourth grade, my parents had divorced and I went to a different school across the river in Alabama. And I, on one of the first days on the playground, I, I mentioned to one of my classmates on the playground that I didn't believe in God. And by the end of recess, it was all over the playground. And by the end of the day, it was all over the school. And for the next two years, I would have students coming up to me from all grades. I remember one time getting cornered in the bathroom and a student from a different grade saying to me, where did the universe come from, David? And I said, I don't know, the Big Bang. He said, try God, David. So there was my my experience of being a non-believer in the Deep South was that this was a big hostile club that I didn't know what the rules were and the people that were in it weren't very nice. And so, you know, my coming to faith is coming to faith in many ways, despite the Christians that I knew as a child. And I, I find that to be a, a real watchword for me continually as I have my own faith walk. There's an inner atheist that stares back at me in the mirror and says, don't be like the people that were that way to you. You have to be a different kind of believer. And by the way, all this stuff is still pretty kooky. 
<laughs> That's true. <laughs> but so uh, so you're a priest, but not yes. I just want to make sure not every Franciscan is a priest or is That's right. is it like the Jesuits where every every Franciscan is a priest? No, and actually the Jesuits not all Jesuits are priests. I didn't re- I thought that everyone was. No, no, they it's it's probably closer to 90 to 95% though for the Society of Jesus, the guys being ordained. No, there are, there are quite a few in fact Rick Curry um is if you Google him, he, he died very recently, a Jesuit brother who actually worked with a lot of disabled individuals in theater workshops. His background was theater and acting. He appeared in television a lot. He was actually a one-armed man. He only had uh, one arm. And so for, for many years, he lived a vocation as a Jesuit brother. So so they are out there. Brother Guy, um, brother Guy from the Vatican Observatory is a Jesuit who's not a priest. Consigliermo or? That's, yeah, something like that. Something I, like that. I didn't want to try to pronounce the Italian name. Yeah, so. we'll we'll put a link to him, though, and you'll be able he to see awesome. the, the name and pronounce it yourself. So. Yeah, we'll put a link to both of those guys, great Jesuit brothers. In any event, like them, though, but with a greater population of uh, non-ordained friars, it's true. We, we are um, a community of both ordained and non-ordained friars. The language we use internally, though, doesn't distinguish we are all brothers. So the minister general who is a priest, who is a, the successor of St. Francis of Assisi, when he signs a document for the order, it's signed brother, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, whether you're a priest, uh, whether you're a cardinal, uh, like Sean O'Malley in Boston, who's a Capuchin Franciscan, his, his proper title is really brother within the friar community. So I always say to people, you know, I have many titles. It's perfectly okay to call me Brother Dan. That's as equally valid as Father Dan, for instance. Well, and, and in the show, I referred to you as Father Dan, and so now I'm suddenly realizing, well, maybe I did that wrong. Maybe I should have referred to you as Brother Dan all this time. But it sounds from what you've just said like it for you, you're not going to make a big distinction. No. I mean, for people who know me personally, I, I actually prefer to be called Dan. Um, so so any of the titles are, are a bit off-putting, and, and that's partly my way of living the Franciscan charism that – you know, the, the term again, friar means brother. Francis understood himself to be a brother to all men and women. And so, you know, it, it'd be very weird if you insisted that your brother call you the right honorable such and such or, you know, Dr. David Dalt or something like this. It's a little too formal. So there are some settings in which titles are very appropriate. And my personal response is usually, this is how I prefer to be addressed. However, whatever your preference is, I respect as well. So if you were, you know, if, if you live in such a way that you have to use titles, you feel uncomfortable otherwise, that's cool. But but Father Dan's totally acceptable. And you live in a house together with other friars and you, you've you you've lived in, in that kind of formative community. And is that, first of all, is that typical for Franciscans? Yeah, we, I mean, that's one of the characteristics of our way of religious life is that we are, we do live in community. Uh, we pray together, we eat together. You know, I mentioned earlier uh, in the discussion of about almsgiving, this idea of evangelical poverty. What we profess is to live without anything of our own, but we live a life of uh, a common life together. So what's nice about the community I live in here in Chicago is that it's a smaller community of what's called solemnly professed friars. So we have no friars that are in initial formation, that are in simple vows or novices or people like that. It's a group of uh, friars who are in active ministry. Some of them are students who are finishing up preparation for active ministry. And we pray together every morning and every evening, celebrate Eucharist together as a community. We each take turns cooking for the whole house. So it's, it's really a nice, nice way of life. So wait a minute, you flipped this around, you jujitsued me in, in the question about getting to know you. You didn't answer my second part about uh, about marriage, so you, you told us a lot about how you became Catholic, uh, at least a little bit. I feel like there's way more there that we can get into. So you're married, 
That's a thing. I am. And, and let, me, let me sort of take a, a, a path to get there and say, when you talk about being vowed, here's how I understand that in my own life. So after I, I had kind of a religious awakening, which happened for me in my late teens, early 20s, I, I realized that I believed in something, but it still didn't have a shape and it certainly didn't have a Christian shape. And, and, and I have been trying to live and understand the narratives of Christianity throughout my entire adult life. And part of the reason why I went to seminary eventually, part of the reason why I, I went on and did, did a PhD in theology was just trying to understand the basics of when I said I was a Christian, what that meant. But on the way to that, I went from being an atheist to being a theist, to being open to the possibility that there was some kind of divine something that was at work in the universe and that had uh, some kind of sentience. And a very, a, a very good way station for a person who has had that kind of epiphany is the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. Oh, yeah. And so for 15 years or so, I was a Quaker. And there's a longer story about how that happened, but again, it was sort of machinations of the Holy Spirit putting some things in my in my path that made me realize that, you know, I was being called to be in this place for a while. And in the same way that you talk about the uh, the, the vows and the obedience that you live under, my life as a Quaker was a, a life that was defined in many ways by what the Quakers call the testimonies. And so if you if you come from the unprogrammed Quaker tradition, the tradition without pastors, a lot of what governs the, the rule of community together is what's called the testimonies, the testimony of honesty, of simplicity, and the testimony of peace. And so Quakers are pacifists. They, they take very seriously, the uh, at least historically, the, the passage from Scripture that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And they take very seriously the notion that, that they are called to live simple lives so that others might have abundance. And so those testimonies are in various communities lifted up, but they're also laid out as kind of goals to live towards. And so I still find myself profoundly affected by meditating on these testimonies, even though I no longer feel myself. It's interesting. I almost feel as if I've been released from a certain number of vows by no longer being Quaker. Hmm. And so, and there's a, there's a longer story for all of this, but I, I, when I made the move from Quakerism to Catholicism, I, it was not just a process of personal choice, but I involved my Quaker community. I wrote them a letter. I used the language of hospitality in greeting them and, and thanking them for the ways in which they had shepherded my spiritual development. And then I said, and now I feel that I'm called into this next space, and I ask for your release from this community to be released into this next thing. And so I became, wow. I became a Catholic with the blessing of my Quaker community, which was strange but absolutely appropriate. Very powerful, in fact. Yeah. yeah. So um, you went off to seminary. Is that where you met your now wife? No, I, I, so yeah, there's so much, and I'm sure with your life as well, there's so much to tell. So the, the, the short, the short version for just to sort of uh, give a tease to all the listeners is in my mid twenties, I had a nervous breakdown. I had a moment of epiphany where the life that I was leading was no longer possible for me to lead. And several choices and trajectories that seemed so open and to have so much momentum were eclipsed and closed to me, which is fine. But what that meant was that I was in a state of profound despair and was really kind of at loose ends. In the midst of that, some things were arranged in my life such that I was able to have an opportunity to go to graduate school. The graduate school that I had the opportunity to go to was Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. And that longer story, but it has to do with part of what put me back together after the nervous breakdown was a group of kids at a youth group 
across the street from Columbia Seminary at Columbia Presbyterian Church. I still think profoundly that the Holy Spirit was involved in all of those moments, but it set me on a path, and then that path, you know, I, I had not been a, a good student in college, but I was an exceptionally good student in graduate school at the seminary, and so I was encouraged to go on to further graduate work. I went on to do further graduate work at Vanderbilt, and two of the blessings that came to me with that were, one, I met my wife, Kira, and uh, two, I had the chance to work with several Catholics, most particularly uh Patu Burns and uh, Robin Jensen, who had a profound effect on my spiritual development towards Catholicism. But there were a lot of breadcrumbs that led me to, to be Catholic. There's a much longer story here. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to come back yeah. to it because, uh, you know, you're leaving, leaving the listeners in suspense. Um, but we'll pick up some other time. Maybe yeah. it'll be good. Uh, you guys can let us know, those of you who are listening out there in podcast land, if you want to hear more about who the heck are we anyways, um, feel free to contact us on social media or uh, at uh, our Gmail account. You can find out all the information at francisfxpod.com. David, as always, it is such a pleasure to uh, to talk with you and uh, look forward to when we connect for our next episode. Thank you, Dan. It's great to sit down with you as well. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks, and you should definitely check out their programs at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N-Center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us the kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis and an F and an X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening.